0: Hi, I'm Emily Edwards, and I'm the co-producer of Books Aren't Dead. In this episode, I interview Dr. Paulina Krojek about her book, Cultural Production and the Politics of Women's Work in American Literature and Film, published in 2019 by Rutledge. Paulina Kroik holds a PhD in Comparative Literature from the University of California, Irvine. Her research focuses on gender, work, and migration in 20th and 21st century literature and film. She has presented at numerous national conferences and contributed to peer-reviewed journals. Dr. Kroik teaches literature and writing at Fordham University and Baruch College, CUNY. Cultural production and the politics of women's work in American literature and film emphasizes the interrelation among women's workplace roles, modes of authorship, and processes of subject formation. The book explores ancillary labor, working women, and cultural production in the context of literary modernism and technological and economic change in the workplace. Thank you for listening. So I guess I'd just like to start by saying thank you for taking the time um to speak um to speak with us today we're really excited to talk about your book cultural production and the politics of women's work in american literature and film um and this is just kind of a general question to start things off um is how did you become initially you know interested in the scope um um for this project how did you you know kind of put all of these different women writers together, Edith Wharton, Sylvia Plath, Anita Luz, Nella Larson, um, you know, what is the genesis for your research here?
1: Yeah, so the book had kind of an interesting um, beginning, I guess, in some ways. Um, So first of all, it really emerged just from my interest in modernism. That was my main field, although as I kind of was getting into it, I realized that it would be I was kind of discouraged from pursuing the major modernists as being like a too much of a I don't know prominent field, uh, so I was steered towards the, these more like marginal modernism, middle brow modernisms. But really, I think the main impetus for like the the topic and as well as um, the time period was this interest in work. So it really emerged from the interest in. Um, in the question of women and work and how it relates to cultural production. Um, And that came partly from my own experience as a graduate student. um, And it was a bit of a shock to me that as a graduate student I had to do a lot of kind of um, uh, proletariatised labour in the form of uh, teaching composition. Uh, which also seemed kind of feminized, like I felt I had, there was some pressure on me to perform a kind of femininity that wasn't necessarily uh, comfortable for me. Um, and then I think the key piece that brought this project together is uh, learning about uh, the periodization of Fordism. So Fordism uh, was really kind of um, opened up this, this field that allowed me to look Uh, at work in relation to technologies of mass communication um, and in relation to uh, mass culture, to advertising, to all these different phenomena that were linked to the emergence of of Fordism as this uh, economic and social formation that I I still believe is uh, really crucial to um, the development of American culture and Western culture in general.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I was, you know, reading this book, like the change in periodization was very, um, was surprising to me because, you know, when I do think about like the Fordist period of, um, you know, the market economy, I do think about factory labor, blue collar labor, but I hadn't really considered that paralleling that is also the rise of this. Um, this feminized labor you know the shift in office production so I thought that was that was really fascinating for me you know to read that that was there's a flip that there's more continuity you say than discontinuity between um, you know Fordism and flexible accumulation so I was wondering um, you know, looking at these different pieces and these authors, how did you approach this methodologically then, you know, to look at these different pieces with archives and kind of trace women's labor um, from a methodological perspective?
1: Yeah, so there was probably a bit of a different approach for the different chapters. I think some of them were really based on specific texts and kind of linking them to the theories especially the first chapter that just maybe brings forth the the emergence of secretarial work Uh, so there could have been an alternative approach and i actually presented it at the dissertation stage to my committee where i could look at more um, popular culture texts like there's a whole body of uh, kind of romance novels that are that feature this figure of the typist, and and they're fascinating there's a bit of um maybe not not a bit but there's work by uh lawrence rainey on on some of these novels um but that was steered more towards you know canonical more canonical or recognizable texts since it was a dissertation project um so the first chapter doesn't have a great deal of archival research it does have um you know does rely on some secondary sources that include archival research of uh of women's um, of the feminization of clerical work um then yeah other chapters like edith wharton the probably most of the other chapters include at least some archival research going into um contemporary pe- periodicals or I mean, periodicals that are contemporary to, to this time period um And especially with i think edith wharton and sylvia plath that was really fascinating to look at the kinds of discourses and the kinds of um, uh, advertising culture that existed in parallel to the work that they were doing and how they commented on on that on that work so that's uh part of the methodology Uh, but i think it's i mean a lot of it is theory driven even though the theory is uh, not not foregrounded as i mean some of my other work I did foreground the theory more, but again <laughs> this mm-hmm. is i think part of the part of it is because it was a dissertation project, and I was following some advice on what what you should and you shouldn't do <laughs> uh so so some of the theory tends to be in the in the foreground, and then as I reframed it for publication, I think you you might notice that the introduction and the conclusion are actually probably have more kind of theory brought brought to the fore than some of the chapters. But yeah, it, it is very conceptual. So there were like concepts and, and kind of historical narratives that I was thinking about. Um, and uh, I was kind of thinking about them through literary texts. So it isn't as hugely archival as it probably could have been if it if it had been um maybe, you know, in another discipline or in another had been developed in another department.
0: No, I mean, I really enjoyed kind of seeing, you know, looking at sort of like a close reading of these texts, but then also getting a little bit about, um, you know, these letters or this correspondence that kind of revealed like the process of production. So I thought it was, it was really fascinating to kind of see both the text and then the, you know, some of like the archival work that demonstrates the labor that went into it. Um, I just wanted to go back. You mentioned um, like this figure of the secretary and the typist was very interesting to you. Um, And I was wondering if you could speak a little bit more about this figure of the typist, the secretary, or as you categorize this figure, the figure of the girl as kind of this method for women writers like Anita Luz or Nella Larson to kind of navigate these changing professional spaces. So, if you could just speak a little bit more about um like this figure of the girl and how this both empowered and limited and uh, limited women writers during this period, yeah, so this figure one of the things that really fascinated
1: me as I was getting into the archives about um the rise of of the secretary is just how how quickly that figure of uh, like this you know the sexy secretary, the sexualized secretary emerged because I think we usually especially you know as I was writing this. Um, around the same time, Mad Men went on on the air, and, and um, there was this association of the secretary with the 1950s. But actually, if you look at the teens, when yeah. women really were entering this workforce for the first time, that figure emerges almost right away. And I don't really go into it because it's a little too too early for my uh, for the time period I focus on. But there, you know, there are films from like. Maybe really early nineteen teens, maybe even nineteen hundreds, that have these plots of um, the the boss secretary. Um, But uh, yeah, the larger I think the larger thing that emerges there, and it's not just the secretary. I think it's a whole kind of uh, shift in um, the kind of the norms around women's uh, gender performance and sexuality that uh, that that happened. So the shift was that. Um, rather than women being confined to kind of their domestic roles and their uh, sexual freedoms were being very uh, strictly uh, circumscribed, um, they got a lot more freedom. They uh, it was okay for them to work in this uh, uh, mixed or male environment. Um, they had a lot of freedom of mobility, and that was you know that was publicized as a as a move forward for women. So there was the, you know the whole discourse. Uh, of like the new woman or modern woman or modern girl, um, but at the same time, as kind of I try to argue, uh, that didn't come with economic freedom, and that was really the thing that really limited um, limited women's uh, freedom and mobility beyond just kind of the the surface, the leisure culture where women could um, maybe dress more uh, a bit. Um, more casually and they could go dancing and they could do all these things. Um, But the second I think the second part of your question is about uh, specifically when I talk about Anita Luce and Nella Larson, how on the one hand, um, that maybe enabled them uh, allowed them to be creative writers or or in Anita Luce's case, case, um, a screenwriter as well. But also limited them. So I think for me, Anita Luce is really kind of the um, the model for that. Where in Hollywood, where there's a very, there was a very uh, structured, um, very hierarchical and gendered system, um, Anita Luce could gain some freedom. And some kind of uh, creative autonomy by performing this figure of the girl, so meaning um, that she was, you know, overtly feminine; that she didn't present herself as um, as a kind of a, aspiring to a more male creative role or uh, to be a male authority. So that really gave her the space to be more creative. To introduce more critique into her um into her scripts and that, that to me was really uh, really striking in the films from uh kind of the maybe the mid 30s where she did she was able to retain that freedom by working with a particular producer who was um more open to what she was doing but at the same time she could never uh become a producer so she could never have that more managerial um, role, she could never have much more much more power so once that system shifted and uh, the more open-minded producers were pushed out and then the head of the studio pretty much took control and he was very, very very conservative he really favored uh, very, very traditional and kind of infantilizing images of women, so there wasn't that much she could do and you could see kind of these ridiculous um you know you, in these kind of ridiculous films that she she wrote at that point you can see a little bit of critique from her part but it's really it's really weak so so that's kind of the um the two sides of the figure of the girl at least as far as the uh hollywood studio system was concerned
0: yeah and just going off of that i definitely see you know this also you speak to this broader tension of of women writers like Edith Wharton, like Anita Luz, like Sylvia Plath, um, having trouble locating themselves as authors within this shift to to new trends of authorship, um, you know, this trouble with kind of articulating their natural aesthetic disposition or, um, you know, of kind of, of taking that mantle of I am an author, but I'm am a I'm a woman author as well. So I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about this Um, shift in modes of authorship that really shut women out during this period you know you speak about Anita Luz and how she wasn't able to um, kind of formulate these more critical scripts and kind of have this full creative freedom because trends of authorship were shifting Um, and if you could just kind of speak a little bit about the relationship between um, changes in modes of authorship and and this economic change that you speak of
1: yeah so this is uh to me Edith wharton and uh, this, this is the repre- the representation i chose for for this shift so uh, my argument about modernism and it and on other research as well is that um it really enacted this shift in what is considered to be a professional author so with edith wharton uh, she actually really emphatically saw herself as a professional author. I'm not sure if she was actually in, that interested in being a woman, kind of seen as a woman author, even though she was clearly uh, given that position. But um, she writes about becoming a professional author, and this is kind of in the, in the maybe uh, 1900s, early 19-teens. Um, And she she was aligned with Henry James, and she saw herself as being kind of an author in that mode. So uh, pretty much like a realist novelist with some modernist elements, like maybe a bit more experimental in terms of plot, in terms of point of view. Um, And at the time, what what it meant to be a professional author is pretty much to be published and to maybe to be reviewed well, to be accepted within these uh, circles, these and these prestige magazines um, so but once once um, kind of high modernism came to represent professional authorship, um, it was not enough to just publish and be accepted by a small this small group of critics. Um, and there was this um, along with the rise of modernism, there became these uh, there came these requirements of having, kind of a body of knowledge and this uh, maybe university training at at your disposal. Um, and there was a much more, uh, maybe, rigorous standard, although rigorous might be a little bit misleading, but a different, maybe a different aesthetic standard of what it meant to be a professional and a high, high author. So Edith Wharton uh, very perceptively Got demoted from her position as a respectable high author. Um, another thing that had to do with it is that she she also published in women's magazines. So um, even though her work wasn't necessarily like um, in the mode of women's fiction, maybe some of it was, but um, she became associated with this kind of more pop culture femininity because she published in in these women's magazines and you can see when you look at the way her work was published um you would have maybe a kind of an opening spread with a nice illustration and then the rest of it would be um printed in a narrow column with advertising for household products on both sides so you can see how that that would taint her in addition to just not being like um and and James Joyce or a T.S. Eliot.
0: Yeah, I think you know as you talk about that kind of distinction between um you know high modernism and you know prof- professional authorship and then you know publishing in mass periodicals or these magazines it's really interesting to consider how this distinction between high and low culture in this period is is very obviously gendered. And we see that, um, you know, with the treatment of Edith Wharton and also um, and in your chapter discussing Sylvia Plath and her, um, you know, her desire to publish in um, these kind of highbrow literary magazines. So I guess I was wondering if you could just speak a little generally towards um, how this period, you know, towards the shift in literary modernism affected, um, you know, how we how we understand high and low culture and how we understand how that um, you know, that division between culture is gendered.
1: Yeah, so I think that division became much more pronounced with the, with the rise of modernism. Again, I mean, latest is kind of a test case for that, but we can see with, with Sylvia Plath as well, where, um, you know, realist fiction that has kind of these uh, traditional themes of, of marriage, if it's written by a woman, does tend to... To be tainted as, as being more of a kind of belonging to mass culture and yeah more in ge- more generally the that divide was pretty became pretty deep with the rise of modernism and going into um, the 50s and 60s where um where high kind of high literature was much more strongly gendered as masculine and ha- that had to do with also with institutional structures. So um, I point, point out that the university really became a legitimating institution for uh, for literature, for high literature. Um, and women were largely in- excluded from that, so that I don't go into that into huge detail, but for Sylvia Plath, that was certainly important. Um, and she she actually kind of, began in in her early in her career she had the potential of continuing within the university so upon graduating from Smith College she was actually offered something like maybe today would be a lectureship where she was like basically teaching there full-time um, and to the people around her that seemed like a pretty good gig uh, but she, she saw that that was kind of a woman's job and that the the way men were valued within these institutions was, was very different. Um, so, so the institutions played a big role in that divide. Um, and the other side of it is that women could pretty easily um, enter institutions of popular culture. So again, with Sylvia Plas, you know, famously in, in the Jar, it narrates uh, Sylvia Plas, real experiences as um an intern in, in mademoiselle magazine which is a probably everyone knows uh, like a young women's magazine and um kind of in general women could enter these and i should say white you know white middle class women could enter these fields of com- more commercial publication and you we have other other examples of women who like for example, um, even like Nora Nora Ephron, she, she I think she began her career in kind of mass culture and, and went from there. Um, so so that's that's kind of what I talk about in terms of the, these distinctions.
0: Mm-hmm. And going off of this, I was I was very interested in, in kind of like these beginning chapters where you talk about um, the entrance of new technology like typewriters and just kind of different office arrangements. Really, you know, kind of started some of this kind of like restructuring or this new gatekeeping.
1: Yeah, so I think uh, the the rise of the typewriter was and other other technologies of communication was really crucial, um, and along with other economic shifts within Ford, with the rise of Fordism, that was really the reason why so many women uh, were kind of recruited into the office. And I should should also mention that part of it had to do with race because they could have easily opened up the office to uh, to men of color, but they didn't want to do that. So they they recruited or opened up the office doors to white uh, kind of, at least somewhat educated women. Um, and what's kind of the, the dynamic that it created in terms of authorship is that men who uh worked in these offices, they kind of looked or looked across their shoulder to um to the female typist and they saw that what she was doing wasn't all that different from their work, right? So they sat at the typewriter and this is kind of S- Sinclair Lewis really articulates that wonderfully. Um so they sit at the typewriter all day kind of writing their books and the type the typist sits at the typewriter. So So there's the sense that potentially the these women have kind of the the tools they have the technology um, and maybe even the education to produce similar works or not to produce similar works but but to produce works of literature in the same way that men uh, have the ability to produce works of literature so uh, so that was to to me uh, maybe another impetus to really um make modernism masculine or make the kind of writing that was really valued at the time masculine um so i mean i guess and the other the other part of it is that in fact yes more more women did have uh access to to writing but their writing tended to be uh shunted off into that um mass market category
0: yeah and i just wanted to return to a point you made earlier about the um these kind of racial divisions and the way in which, um, you know, just there were industrial constraints and that prevented black women from entering the office and how, you know, typewriting these professions were very, they were exclusionary and they were for, you know, middle class white women and how in your chapter on Nella Larson's work, you, you know, you focus on these kind of additional barriers and tensions she faces as a member of, um, you know, this black bourgeois class working as both a, you know, professional librarian or a nurse, but then also attempting to to break into you know this creative profession of author. Yeah, so so black women um,
1: face a much different landscape than than white women at the time, and so Nella Larson, I'm, I'm talking about the 1920s when. So this was a time period that where for white women it was very very easy to get one of those typist jobs and maybe even st- something slightly better than just um run-of-the-mill typist but almost all these jobs were close to black women and the few black businesses that uh, might have offered these jobs still held them for for men because men had so few employment opportunities so there weren't very many uh jobs of that sort for black women and black women tended to those who could get an education could do something other than domestic service um, went into what was called prof- women's professions, so really limited pretty much to uh, things like uh, nursing, teaching social work, and uh, li- librarianship, which was, ju- I think, just opening up for for black women at the time. Um, so Nella Larson, who is known for her two novels which are kind of set within black bourgeois settings she actually came from a, a working class family um, in chicago and um with some difficulty she she got this training as a nurse and she was actually a fairly accomplished as an established as a nurse before she became a writer um however i mean the, these professions they offered some stability they Uh, were probably some of them might have been even better paid than the the secretarial secretarial jobs, but they were one very labor intensive, so they were not like the male professions where you might, you know, it might just be nine to five and we'll have the nice vacations and all of that. Um, And they also had that requirement of women's respectability, so that was really a, a big thing. Uh, for black women at the time and it was seen as part of the uplift uplift movement promoted this respectability as a way to counter uh stereotypes um so so larson was really kind of caught in the middle of all of this so she was able to uh get once after she got married she moved to new york yeah so so Sonella larson so she she trained as a nurse and then she was able to um, leave nursing she became kind of eventually worked part-time as a librarian and for for a certain period of time was able to pursue writing full-time uh to write these two wonderful novels which were really both written and maybe in the space of of two three years um so uh, quicksand and passing so um the thing that was really I think a big conflict for her is that on the one hand as a as a writer she also adopted this this version of the figure of the girl, so kind of Bohemian persona and and this was all within the context of the of the Harlem Renaissance where there was a lot of openness towards uh sexuality and um kind of it was, I think she she benefited from being able to to play that role. But that's all really uh, conflicted with the ideals of, of respectability as they, were prof- uh, as they were promoted within these professions. So one thing that, um, and I, I should just note, uh, kind of even though it's not directly related to the question, that one of the things I talk about is within Quicksense, just, just the level of astuteness and cultural criticism that she brings to the different discourses and ideologies that were present at the time, Uh, so certainly to these ideals of respectability, uh, but also a certain collusion between uh, some proponents of uplift and actually racist ideologies, so uh, political trends that sought to economically and politically marginalize black people. So she really picks up on that. And I think that's an aspect of, of her work that people um, don't, don't usually notice or don't, don't tend to focus on. Um, So, so one thing that's I think really um, difficult and tragic about her trajectory is that uh, she really wrote towards the end of the 1920s, where that uh, kind of Harlem Renaissance experimentation and exuberance was at its peak and then in the 1930s it, it ended. So once there was a, a shift first of all there was a, a big um, just financial crash so there was less money for writers all around but there was also a big shift within the ha- Harlem Renaissance movement away from the social concerns, away from writing about bourgeois uh, milieu millions of, of um, African-Americans and towards a more militant aesthetic and politically militant writing. Um, and she, she couldn't make that move. So she kept trying to write this, like another version of maybe passing or something like that. And there are some biographers that have kind of some ideas of what she was going to write. And I, I think uh, the manuscripts did not survive. So she didn't have, um, success writing that kind of fiction and um, she couldn't shift to more maybe working class more re- kind of gritty and realist oriented fiction and at the same time she really was unwilling to go back to uh, to working professionally either in nursing or librarianship so she kept insisting on trying to be the kind of writer uh, that she was and i think it I mean, she eventually just kind of disappeared from the scene and there's, uh, you know, people speculate that she had a nervous breakdown, maybe something else. Um, but she disappeared um, and she did go back to nursing eventually and she just worked, as, you know, just a regular nurse for the rest of her life. So that was uh, kind of the, sa- the sad conclusion of her fairly short writing career.
0: Yeah, I think that I know Nella Larson's story that you explore is very um it's very tragic and also you know the other authors that you explore in the book Sylvia Plath, Edith Wharton um there's also obviously a lot of you know setback and professional challenge there um and I was just this I found this really fascinating um in your book that you explore how you know Edith Wharton, Nella Larson, Anita Luz, and even Sylvia Plath at times um perhaps espouse um some type of conservative ideology in their work or some type of middle class ideology in their works um and i was just wondering um you know these are all very different authors and different um cultural texts we're looking at but do you think that um these writers at times espoused a more you know conservative critique or a more patriarchal critique um uh, because of industrial constraints. You know, you mentioned Anita Luce who didn't have the freedom working under different producers, um, but Eth- Edith Wharton did seem sort of disillusioned, you write at the end of her career, um, and, and wrote more, perhaps, conservative novels. So I was just wondering if you could speak to, um, you know, why you think these, these authors, at times, um, became implicated within more conservative ideologies. Yeah
1: so I think there's probably kind of a combination of reasons for for each one of them um I think you're right so these are uh, kind of middle class writers I mean they they didn't necessarily come from the middle class but that was the context for for most of their writing um and and they yeah I don't I don't think any of them would be categorized as a radical feminist or a proletarian writer so these conventions of uh, uh, kind of patriarchal conventions of gender, I think they're very deeply entrenched in bourgeois thinking and the way people are just, you know, exist within within that environment. Um, but I think uh, maybe the thing that uh, I sort of talk about a little bit is that um, I see these structures or discourses of gender as being, on the one hand, um, social maybe kind of even going into like the more psychological theories of them being inculcated in in childhood but they're also uh, very powerfully reinforced within economic and industrial institutions so um certainly if we look at kind of writing as, as being about uh producing something for publication or 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 um producing a film uh, so, there are constraints, and some of these authors push the boundaries more than others um but I mean you have to really really wonder how far they can push them within these uh within these institutions um and also we see kind of their own performance of gender so this we talked a little bit about this with the figure of the girl um And to me, I mean, as I was thinking about this, it seems like the requirement to perform gender in a certain way must affect also like the way you can think and write about it. So if if Anita Lewis uh, was required to perform this this figure of the girl or any of these other um, authors, then was it really possible for her to make a a radical statement? Or, I mean, it's it's possible, I think it's makes it much more difficult to make a radical statement where not only are they do they have to perform this kind of gender there's really not much of a an alternative space where they could perform something else or or be something else
0: yeah and I think your your book really reveals how um, these kind of like structural like labor constraints affect the way in which a cultural text is is produced and how a cultural product is produced Um, And so I was just wondering, generally, um, you know, in your work, you really bring this focus on industrial conditions, um, technological changes that structure how women write and what they're able to write during this period. And I was wondering if you could just speak about the importance of contextualizing labor conditions, um, not just economic systems, but labor conditions when we're writing about um, female cultural producers Not just you know in this specific Period but also if we're writing about Female cultural producers in the Contemporary period as well
1: Yeah to me I mean that Was um, as I mentioned that was kind of The the impetus in some ways Just going from my own experience Which I don't think it's, it's really Made it into this book which may be a good thing but um, yeah I think that uh, Contextualizing cultural Production in relation to the conditions of labor and looking at the way gender works in 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 relation to those conditions uh, is really important um, and I think that th- that's something that's often overlooked when we look at uh, for example the publication system within modernism so so one of the things that I was responding to um, were these studies which were I think important in in their and important in themselves, but they would kind of valorize women editors. So there was this this book, and I'm blanking on the author, but it was an important kind of well-received book about editors within modernism. And it you know really documented very thoroughly all the work that the, these editors did, how it contributed maybe to publication of um, of Joyce's work, publication of T.S. Eliot's work. But it didn't talk about the fact that these women editors they didn't most of them didn't really publish major works of, of their own um and maybe the other side of it is that sometimes we valorize uh a woman author or a work by a woman author and we say okay this is you know this is so progressive this is so wonderful let's celebrate this work by a woman author or today it's the same with uh you know authors of color, LGBTQ authors, let's celebrate this work and I absolutely agree that we should celebrate this work. But if you look at the whole field and there's I mean it's kind of a kind of token and ends up being as a kind of tokenism where there's just this one author, there's a couple of these authors, um, then we we don't hear the whole story. So if you look at the whole field of cultural production and you see that women are very severely marginalized or other groups uh, racial ethnic minorities uh, sexual minorities are marginalized um it tells a very different story and we can really start to see what's missing from uh, the books that are the books that are being written or the films that are being produced so what are the experiences the voices the types of uh, you know, performance
0: of identity that, that we're missing. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, I think that was, I, I mean, one reason I, I really enjoyed reading this book was this focus on labor and integrating, you know, you integrate your analysis between, um, you know, the cultural conditions and the the labor conditions also inform the, the actual product of the cultural text. And I, I found that extremely fascinating to read, especially during, um, during this period. Um, I just have one kind of more general question to wrap things up, if that is okay with you. Sure. Yeah. Um, so in you kind of conclude your work by drawing out these continuities, you know, looking at Mad Men and looking at how, um, you know, the gig economy, um, this explosion of, you know, the TV show Girls, how a lot of, um, a lot of the labor conditions and a lot of the, the structural sexism that we see. Um, you know, in the early 1900s, kind of carry over through Fordism into this contemporary flexible accumulation model. Um, and we see a lot of connections between, you know, the hashtag need to movement now and how the sexism that women face in the workplace. And I was just wondering if you could speak to, um, to what you see as, I, I guess, the strongest continuities between, um, you know, the conditions women cultural producers faced in the early 1900s um, to now, and then also generally, this is kind of a two-part question. Um, the, how you see the importance of, of scholars, um, of scholars of media and cultural um, production to look at historic forms of cultural production because I think often we get caught up in looking at, Oh, Twitter or memes or what's going on on Facebook, um, and then we kind of miss these these historical continuities between you know what was happening in publishing, what was happening in the Hollywood studio system, and how does that relate to today? So, that's a a big question I threw, but whatever you'd like to respond to. Okay,
1: yeah,
0: g- great question.
1: Um, so, in terms of continuities, and I mean, I'm glad that you mentioned hashtag Me Too. Which was really that was the point where I pretty much I decided to uh, to submit this book for publication it was kind of sitting most another version of it was sitting for a while and I was wasn't receiving that much attention I didn't think it would get published um, so with the Me Too movement really the the biggest continuity I see is is the the power hierarchy um, and the the power differential within the cultural industries and how it's tied to to gender and sexism so really the thing that the continuity that I noticed from the figure of the secretary whether it's kind of the historical accounts that I read or in Mad Men where it's I think it's some of it, at least the the first season tends to be fairly uh, historically informed um, is that secretaries you know whatever their actual job description was their main role was kind of to be um, a servant to to the male boss, um, and we have a lot of other jobs where we don't really see it that way. I think the like the secretary has been elim- pretty much eliminated in in the eighties and nineties uh, uh, we have administrative assistants and we have other kind of different roles that, and some of them are actually you know highly desirable so when we saw um all the um, kind of confession, not not confessions, but uh, women speaking out um, with the Me Too movement. A lot of these women were were within jobs that were highly desirable, but there were still these kind of subservient jobs. So they were like, you would be an assistant to some kind of celebrity or a producer or something like that. Um, and that, that creates this power differential, and the power differential is highly and intrinsically gendered Uh, so i would say that's that's a big um a big continuity and i think it continues to affect cultural production today maybe not as um not as obviously and not as visibly as it did back in like studio era hollywood but it's still there um and um the second, can can you remind me what the oh the 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 role of scholarship and looking yeah. at uh, kind of looking at the past? Um, so I think I think the kind of historical cultural production, um, I think does give us a, a different perspective, right? It gives us um, a different frame, perhaps, to in which to evaluate the c- contemporary trends. Um, and I mean. One thing I wanted to, to bring up, I and mean, maybe maybe it's not directly relevant, but I was thinking about it as, um, I, was, as I was preparing for to do the podcast, is, for example, um, maybe a few years back, there came out a, a really important book about um, publishing, about the publishing, Mark McGraw's... Um, uh, what was it called? The, the Program Era the program era which was about the influence of writing programs on on the production of literature um, and it looks at these writing programs and it's it's where it has a very positive conclusion or mostly positive conclusion about the role of these writing programs in um, maybe creating encouraging more diversity or um, Giving more people kind of a path to becoming an author, uh, but once again, it doesn't really look at gender uh, and doesn't necessarily make kind of the link between um, the conditions of production and and the the final products. Uh, in so, in some cases, it does. So I might be uh, doing injustice there, but I think. You know this is something that looks at fa- a fairly recent it's still historical a fairly recent historical period that still might might be happening um so it doesn't necessarily have the perspective of of looking at a period where we are no longer kind of contained within it where we no longer have as much of a stake in it so I think uh taking that historical perspective or a larger historical perspective just makes it possible to reframe the way we look at the present so you know besides just the obvious the obvious answer of um learning something about ourselves by by looking at, at history yeah i mean i
0: i again i really enjoyed reading this book and i feel like it really informed the way that i think about um uh like digital production or content production now in a digital space um and really reframed how you know there are uh, so many continuities between these earlier periods and how we think about effective labor now and um, you know feminized labor now in the current period when we're really thinking about like content production and writing Um, so Mm I really enjoyed reading it again Um, and I just want to you know thank you again for taking the time to speak with us it's been a pleasure to have you on the books aren't dead podcast Um, and it was just it was great to read your book Oh, thank you so much. I mean, that's really
1: great to hear, and I I really enjoyed the discussion. It was an honor to be on Books Aren't Dead.